hey, so tonight we're wrapping up the story of Noah. And um, the best way that I can kind of put it is that Noah's story kind of ends like a bad season finale, all right? So as we just read this story, um, you have this Noah that is declared as a person that is righteous, that walks with God in this world, in a world that at his point in time, everyone was actually seeking the opposite, but what we experience in Noah is that he's found righteous before God, and he walks with God. And so when you look at how his story ends, this upright man, his life ends, it it feels sort of disappointing, doesn't it? I mean, what we see here is that Noah builds a vineyard, he gets drunk off the wine, and then one of his sons finds him in a state of shame. You're like, but not Noah, right? After all that we've kind of trekked through with this, you're just like, man, this is, this kind of stinks. And so here's, here's what I want us to see, all right? So I, there's a reason that Moses, who's the writer of Genesis, ends the story with Noah this way. Because, I mean, if you're, if you're, it's you and me, and we're like in heaven, right? Um, and you're, we're Noah, you're like, Moses, did you really have, like, do you really have to end my story this way? Like, you can just move on. You can just have skipped over this part of my story, right? Like, if that's us, we're Noah in the heavenly places, and we're looking down at Moses, like, I got a grudge with you whenever you get up here, you know what I'm saying? Um, but here's what I think Moses is trying to do, all right? I think there's at least three things. Um, I believe that Moses is trying to help us see that Noah is not the Messiah, all right? So you have where the story of, of Noah. He's the righteous man. We don't hear any words from him until this passage tonight. All that you see is just constant obedience and faith that comes from Noah. And so if you're a reader and up to this point, you're like, well, is Noah the one? This promise that God gave his people in Genesis 3.15, that there would be a seed of the woman that would crush the head of the serpent, you may come to this passage and be like, maybe Noah's the one. And I think Moses is trying to help us see, like, no, Noah isn't the one. Like, there's one that's still to come. So that's the first. Second, I believe that Moses is trying to help us track that promise that he gives, that God gives in Genesis 3.15. So what you see from the outset here, or from the rest of the book of Genesis, is you see that Moses actually tracks this blessing or this promise that he's given to his people throughout the remainder of the main characters of the book of Genesis. You see it with Abraham. You see it with Isaac, you see it with Jacob, and you see it with Joseph. And so what you see, is, see here is the start of this pattern that actually plays out through the rest of Genesis. So you see that Moses tracks this blessing. He's wanting to help us see that there really is one that's going to come, that's going to deal with the sin of this world, the darkness that's inside of you and me. But then lastly, I believe that Moses is trying to use this story to proclaim truth for our everyday life. And this is where I really want us to camp out tonight, all right? Because I think there's a lot that's here in this story that you and I feel and experience in our day-to-day life here that we need to wrestle with. In some ways, I feel like God's given us a paradigm for why life is really hard. And I, I think it's a kindness of God that this story is included. While it feels disappointing, like that bad season finale, in a lot of ways, I, I find a lot of comfort, and I hope you do too, by the end of this night um, as we work through this story. So the story isn't like a morality tale like Aesop's fables that's trying to teach us right from wrong. 
It's actually trying to communicate truth about life and about God and about us. All right? And so uh, hopefully that has you in this place of like ready to step in, right? Like, okay, if that's the truth, then like I want to hear this kindness that God has for me through the scriptures tonight. So one of those truths that I think we see in this narrative, you could, you could find more than just the one that we're going to tap in tonight, but the one that I really feel like was drawn out for me this week as I was wrestling with this passage is the interplay between sin and suffering, all right? So what you see here is Moses, um, it, it's like he's writing, here's the human experience in a fallen world, all right? The thing that you and I feel in day-to-day life, it's this struggle of sin and suffering, all right? There's this cycle or these patterns of sin and suffering that he's wanting to draw out for us in the life of Noah because you and I experience it in our life too. So these two sort of feed off of each other, right? Sin and suffering, they feed off each other. Your personal suffering is often connected to your sin. And I'm going to try to draw that out for us tonight. And then in the same way, your sin often inflicts suffering on others. You see that? And so we, we see both of these things in this passage tonight as we wrestle with this story. And so um, here's what I want to do. I just want to look at those two instances, how our suffering often leads to sin in our life, but then our sin often inflicts suffering on others. And I want to wrestle with some application as we step into these two instances. And then I want to end with how it's all possible that God kind of brings this like a solution, a hope in the midst of what we feel in this world um, by the very end of this passage. And I believe there's a lot of hope at the end of it. Sound good? Okay. So let's start with the pattern of suffering that leads to sin. All right. We find this in verses 20 through 21. So here's what it says. Noah, as a man of the soil began by planting a vineyard, and he drank some of the wine, became drunk, and uncovered himself inside his tent. All right? So um, in just two verses, what Moses is trying to do is he's trying to help us connect Noah to Adam. All right? So I, I have some points up here on, this, on the TV uh, for you to see this. All right? So what Moses is doing is he's connecting Noah's life to Adam's life. All right? So Adam, in creation, he's made from the ground. Right? God creates him out of the dirt. We see this. We practice this on Ash Wednesday. From dust you are made to dust you will return. Well, how is it described of Noah in this passage? It's that he's a man of the soil. Right? So he's connecting Noah's life to Adam's life in the very source of life that we see here in this passage. And then you also see another connection. So you see Adam, he sins in Genesis chapter 3 by eating the fruit. In this passage, we see that Noah sins by drinking the fruit. Right? He, he plants a vineyard, and then he gets drunk off of the wine. And then it, the last one that you see here is that Adam, after he has sin, he is awakened to his nakedness. Right, And then in this passage, you see that Noah ends with nakedness in this passage. And so what Moses is trying to do is he's trying to connect the life of 
Adam and Noah together. But you, we need to stop and we need to recognize the difference between the two, all right? So there's a difference between Adam and the world that he inhabited and then Noah and the world that he inhabited, and it's suffering. Adam inhabited a world that only consisted of potential and promise, right? There was no sin before Adam ate of the fruit of the garden. And then what we see here with Noah, though, is Noah, what the Bible describes in the world that Noah inhabited is that it was covered with wickedness and violence, right? The way that God describes it is that it was the expanse of all of the world was covered by the sin of man. And the only one that he looked down and saw as righteous because of the grace of God in Noah's life is Noah himself, all right? And so the difference between what the world that Adam inhabited and the world that Noah inhabited is suffering, all right? So I've tried to tease this out for us in each of the passages in like the last pre- the previous four weeks, um, but c- let me how to kind of just like bring it all together for us, all right? So uh, <clears throat> what we see at the beginning of Noah's story is Noah is 500 years old, all right? Noah is 500 years old, and he's described as a man that walks with God, all right? So for every single one of us that would claim the name of being a Christian or followers of Jesus, we recognize that living in a world, that we, a broken world that's marred with sin and brokenness, like we recognize the challenge that is in following Jesus in this world, don't we? We, we feel it internally within our own flesh, like the battle that happens within our own souls. But then we also know like what the world thinks of Christians, which is often not great, right? Like we, don't, we aren't highly favored by the world. We aren't looked on as if we're like the prize of humanity, right? Like that's not what, so if that's our experience, imagine Noah's where he's the only one that is proclaimed to be walking with God and he does it for 500 years, right? So beyond that, then God tells Noah that he's going to bring a flood and tells Noah to build a boat. And what happens over the trajectory of the next hundred years of Noah's life, we see that he walks in faith and obedience in doing the exact thing that God has called him to do. So if it was already hard for him for five years, imagine all of the ridicule and mockery that came to Noah's life for 500 years up to this point. And then imagine going and having to build a boat when the world has never experienced anything close to a flood, right? Like all of that ridicule and mockery is only amplified as he's trying to walk with God and carry out the proclamation of God over that course of a hundred plus years. And then the flood comes. So the flood comes and as the the world experiences this, they know because they've watched Noah build the boat and as the waters begin to surge on the ground, imagine where they run. Who do they run to? They're running Noah. He has the, he's the one that has the boat. And so imagine Noah is on the boat with his family, just eight people that go onto that boat with him, along with at least two of every animal. So you just have like this massive zoo that's on a boat. And then you hear all the knocks and the pleas and the cries for salvation from those that are experiencing the flood. And so as Noah exits the boat, what we kind of described a couple of weeks ago is that he either exits the boat to a war scene or he exits the boat to desolation, right? 
So what happens, like the Bible uses war terminology in the way that he, we look at how the flood is inflicted on the earth. So it's either a bunch of bodies that are left over or it's a world that Noah no longer recognizes because of all the cities that he used to visit with his family, the people that he knew that lived in villages all across the earth, they're all gone. And so look, it's here where we see the cycle of suffering that leads to sin, all right? So as we have this context of what Noah is living and experiencing, you have to stop and think like, that's a lot to endure, right? I mean, if it's you and me, like, we have weeks that we fall with much less that happens in our life. But then you see all that Noah has endured. Like, this is suffering. Like, this is hardship. This is a lot to endure over that 600 plus years that Noah has gone through all that has happened here. And look, in this passage, what we see is that rather than seeking help for his suffering, Noah copes. You see that? So he plants a vineyard, he numbs himself with the wine, and then he lays exposed in his tent. This is sin, all right? So remember back to the sermon that we did in Genesis chapter 3, the way that we define sin is that oftentimes sin is taking a good thing and then making it an ultimate thing in your life. That's what Noah does here. Noah is taking something that is good. We see Jesus partake of wine in the New Testament. And the part of that we see it when he's at the wedding, it's a source of joy and delight amongst the wedding feast that's happening, right? Well, what happens here is Noah takes something that is good and he puts it in an ultimate thing, turning to it, hoping that he finds healing and hope from it. Do you see that? That's what's happening here. And look, this is a sequence that we all know too well, isn't it? Like every single one of us have lived into this pattern where our suffering leads to our experience of sin in this life, all right? So here's like some examples of how we do this, all right? So imagine you're kind of going throughout your week. Maybe this was your week this past week. You're going through your week um, for you go to your school or you go to your job and you're just, it feels like there's just constant disappointment, Right? It feels like you have struggled to do your job. It's, you've struggled to do the work. Um, the results that have come back for your work, school or job, um, aren't great. And so it's just kind of a blah week. And then you come home and friction happens, whether it's with your roommate or your spouse. Um, if you have kids, you know how challenging that can be to try to parent in the midst of just a lot of junk that's going on in your life. And so there's been outbursts of anger. You haven't responded to them the way that you would like. Um, you get bad news about like dryers that like die on you. And so you have to spend $700 and you have to go and buy a new dryer. I'm not speaking my own personal life to you at all right now because I actually am, all right? So um, like you have all this experience that happens throughout a week, <clears throat> and then how do we often respond to it? A lot of times it's not running to God where we can find ultimate healing and rest. A lot of times we go to the good things and we turn them to, into ultimate things so that we can cope, don't we? So for instance... Um, some of us are like Noah. We run to drink or we run to food. And what are you trying to do? You're trying to numb. 
You're trying to numb yourself from the hardship of what you've experienced in the previous week. And so, look, your suffering leads to you either, either getting drunk or practicing in gluttony with the hopes that it's going to numb you from the pain that you've experienced in the past week. Some of us try to avoid, right? And so what do we do? We run to sleep. We just want to lay out in bed and we, we sleep. I don't have this gift, but some of us just can lay in bed. We can call in sick and just sleep all day. Or like you binge watch a TV show. Some of us, it's like you love to travel, and so you're trying to get out of town as often as you can. What are you trying to do? You're trying to flee your problems. You're trying to escape. Or you run to pleasure, right? So you run to physical intimacy, whether it's just like a hookup or whether it's a relationship that you're like relationship after relationship you're just running to, and what you're trying to do is find pleasure for yourself that can allow you to get away from the pain that you've experienced, or like retail therapy, <laughs> any, that hit any home with anybody? Like uh, you run to shopping, right? There's literally science that shows that whenever you hit that checkout button, a lot of times there's like a chemical thing that happens in your brain. And it's a pleasure mechanism. And it's like this addiction that whenever you deal with hurt, you deal with pain, you deal with suffering, you run to this experience that you have when you hit that, that click button, and retail therapy is sort of like your medicine for the pain that you experience in this life. All of this is taking, or most of this, is taking a good thing and placing it as an ultimate thing, and it's a means of coping. You see that? You feel that in your life? Like every single one of us in this room has done this, all right, including myself. And so these patterns of suffering that lead to sin or injury that lead to adultery are things that we experience in our life. And look, there's a difference between them as a means of trying to rest at night and coping, all right? So trying to rest at night is like you maybe partake of these things in a way that doesn't abuse, the, abuse them, but uses them rightly, and it brings sort of like a breath of fresh air. There's a way for you to experience the goodness and kindness of God in this world. But the difference for coping is that you turn to it for your healing. You see that? So whenever it's experiencing the good things of this world, you take of them and it brings your mind back to the kindness of God and you don't abuse them, but you experience the kindness of the Lord whenever you experience them. But whenever you're trying to run to them for coping, it's like you're crying out to them, heal me. That's what happens whenever we go from suffering and that's suffering to sin. That's the cycle that we run to. That's what we often experience in life. And I, I believe that this is a kindness of Moses that he's showing what Noah did in his life because he wants us to recognize it in our life. Now, here's what we as people that call on the name of Jesus do. We need to embrace the gift of the priesthood of believers. All right? This is what it looks like to go counterculture to what our sin or what our flesh may want to run to do or even what our culture tells us to run and do. What the gift of calling on the name of Jesus is whenever you call on the name of Jesus is that he gifts you with a spiritual family, a faith family. And what this faith family does is it points you, it, it both 
proclaims the truth of the grace of God in your life and that it points you to the life that you have in Jesus that God's called you to live here and now. It's not just this get out of jail free card that it's like you have this scan code that's over your chest that whenever you die, you just, God scans it and you get in. No, God has a different way of living for you here in this life that isn't a means of just coping, but there's a way that God wants to heal you in your experience that you walk with him in the day-to-day life here. And the common means for this is the priesthood of believers, all right? So here's what 1 Peter 2, 9 says. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that, look, you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So you both proclaim to those that call on the name of Jesus the hope and the grace that you have in Christ. But then there also is this reminder to the life that we are called out of darkness to live in the marvelous light of Christ's life. So the grace of God is that God shares his life with you, not because you've earned it or deserved it, but because he's given it to you freely at Christ's expense. Look, this isn't just talking about the being, your sin being wiped away. It's also being added to you that you get to walk in the life of Christ here and now. Do you see that? And so look, it is a kindness and it is a grace for us when someone points out our sin and calls us to live into the life that Christ has given us. Look, oftentimes we view grace as just like a self-comfort for someone that is dealing with hurt in their life. And it's like, you're okay. Jesus has covered you. That's part of the truth. The other truth is that he's called us to live a different life. And this different life isn't coping. This different life isn't something that we turn to the good things of God in order to find healing there. No, rather, it's turning to the one who can truly heal your soul. And the way that that happens is often through the priesthood of a believer. So here's what we need to grow in, church. We need to grow in our confession, Okay? We need to grow in confessing our sin and our struggle with one another. Here's what Dahadi Lewis, how, here's how he describes confession. He says, confession is telling the truth about what's going on inside of us. Sometimes that is the actual experience of sin. Sometimes that's the suffering and the struggle that could lead us to sin. And the kindness of God is that we grow in confession to the point that when we identify the suffering and the struggle that we step into confession before it gives birth to sin. This is the kindness of God, that you have people that you can be open with because here's the good news for you. No one in this room is better than you. Every single one of you deals with sin. Every single one of our lives is marked by struggle and sin. And so whenever we go and we confess our sin, if we are living into this life that God has called us into, what the response of the priesthood of believers is not judgment, but they hold this sin with you, and then they are preaching the kindness of God to your life, pointing you to the life that God has called you to live in Jesus Christ. Like This is a, look, oh my gosh, this is a privilege 
Do you see this? Like whenever we have the courage and the boldness to come and open our life up to one another like this, look, this is my struggle. This is what I'm going through. I'm having a really hard time. Will you hold this with me? And then as someone holds it with you, they're pointing you to the life that you have in Jesus saying, hey, don't give into this. Look, you have the Holy Spirit who lives inside of you reminding you of what Christ has done for you and saying, look, this is not just something that like God wants you to like just get past, but look, he actually has a lot of hope for you. Like there's hope that when we deal with the struggle and we wrestle with sin and we come confessing our struggle to other people, that the Holy Spirit does this unique work that slowly over time that sin is being put to death in your life. It's not just coping where it's trying to numb those things, but it's actually truly being dealt with. And so here's the kindness of God whenever you look at your life as you walk with Jesus and you engage in this fight and the struggle with the priesthood of believers, as you look back five to 10 years, the things that were really prevalent, the sin that was really prevalent in your life, as you live with Christ and you live with the priesthood of believers, what you see is that sin that once dominated you five to 10 years ago has slowly been put to death in your life. It feels oftentimes long. It feels oftentimes hard. But look, it's our joy as the priesthood of believers, those that have called on the name of Jesus, to hold these things together and to point one another to the life that God has called us to in Jesus Christ. Do you see that? So look, Moses is highlighting in Noah's life suffering that leads to sin. Every single one of you deals with this. Lean into the priesthood of believers. Here's two questions that can help you do that, all right? The first question is this, where am I? Where am I? What's going on inside of my soul? What am I experiencing? What is the suffering that is taking place in my life that I can go and talk to one of my brothers or sisters in Jesus about? And then secondly, what do I need? What do I need? So you ask and you invite someone to hold your sin and your suffering. And then look, the privilege of a Christian is that we get to pray with one another. We are taking this thing that we're holding with another brother and sister in Christ to the one God that can actually do something about it. And this is a gift and a privilege. And when we don't live with this honesty, we are we aren't allowing people to experience this privilege. So have, like, look, live with humility and live with honesty where you can come to like another person and say, I don't have all my stuff together and I need help. And the kindness of God is he meets you in that place and he ministers to your soul and then you see growth in your life. All right, so that's the first pattern we see. The interplay of suffering and sin is that suffering leads to sin. The gift, the invitation for us is a step into confession. The second interplay that we see, we see it in Noah's son Ham in verse 22. So here's, here's what we see. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside. Sin that inflicts suffering. All right, so it's possible to see what happens here with Ham as like a harm, harmless prank. Um, 
and that Moses maybe is being too hard on him, all right? But here's what I, I think is actually going on. It's not like shaving cream in the hand, <laughs> if you know a middle school version of you. It's not like shaving cream in your hand, but it's actually like a teen mocking an old war vet. You see, like you can either think of like a movie scene or like a image or a video that you've seen on social media. Like teens that like get up into a war veteran's face and like stand over them and mock them and ridicule them. And what it does inside of you is like it, it should irk you, right? That's what should be moved inside of us when we read this, uh, this particular story of Ham because the scene is filled with disrespect and dishonor, right? So Moses, what he's trying to do here, just like he was trying to put Adam, connect Adam and Noah's life, Moses is actually trying to place Ham in the position of Satan himself, all right? So think on this with me. The meaning of Satan in the Bible is accuser, all right? So in the book of Revelation, it's said of Satan that he accuses us before God day and night, all right? So Ham here shares the nature of Satan. What does he do? He sees his father, that he's naked in the tent, and then he goes out and tells his brothers. It's as if he's coming and inviting them in to see, come look at Noah's sin. Come look at Noah's sin. And as he goes in, Ham's sin intends for Noah's suffering. Noah is the subject of, of the mockery and ridicule that he wants to invite his brothers into. That's what's taking place here. So he stands over Noah. He's looking down on Noah in his state of shame. And then he condemns Noah by inviting others to join in with him and to do the same. That's, that's the scene, right? And so as he shares the nature of Satan, what we see the response here of Noah is that Ham actually shares in Satan's judgment as well. So verse 25 says, cursed be Canaan. That's Ham's son, all right? So it's showing that like the sin of Ham is actually gonna trickle down to the rest of his prodigy. And the lowest of slaves will be to his brothers. So like Satan, Ham is cursed. In Genesis three, we see Satan is cursed. And then like Satan in Genesis chapter three, Ham is humbled. So Satan is lower than all of creation. Here, Ham is lower than all of his brothers. Now, here's the thing that we have to wrestle with. And this is, this is probably harder to agree to than what the first cycle was, all right? The same of thing that happens with Ham, look, every single one of us have participated into. We are all also in the, not necessarily in terms of like the nature and judgment of Ham, but we have all practiced what Ham has done to Noah to other people, where our sin has inflicted suffering on other people. So um, here's just like an example out of my own life, all right? So um, this is probably about three or four years ago. Um, We had a Christmas party, staff Christmas party um, at the church that I worked at previously. And there was a guy, um, he was a resident with us and uh, like, love this guy. I actually spent this last week with him down in Florida. Um, But he had this tendency where after a meeting was done, it was like, boom, he was out the door, right? So we would all linger, talk, catch up. Not this guy. He like took off after every single meeting. And so we were at a Christmas party at a restaurant and like he and his family like did the exact same thing as soon as like we got the bill. They're like, boom, they booked it out of there. 
And I made a joke at his expense in front of everybody, right? So like I stand before everybody, like I kind of acknowledge what has happened and I in some sense reenact what has just happened as a way of mocking and ridiculing this individual. And here's what happened. He was around the corner, all right? So I get up and I act out what has just happened. I run around the corner and there's the guy. Like he's experienced all of it. Like I just die inside, right? Like I am embarrassed. I have just done something I know is like very shameful. Here's like my response that I want to do. It's like this guy's office is like 10 feet away from mine, but I could probably avoid him, right? It's like if I come in late after him, close my door and then leave after him, I could probably avoid him for a long time, all right? So like, that's like my sinful tendency in response to this. What I ended up doing is I actually went and apologized to him. I acknowledged exactly everything that happened. I asked for his forgiveness. He was gracious and kind to forgive me. But look, I did what Ham did here. My sin inflicted some form of suffering on this other man. And look, you too have done something. Maybe you're just like, heaped with guilt as you are hit with like a flashback that has happened in your life as I share my story. But like this is something that is true of you too. And look, as the priesthood of believers, this is not the way of life for us. This is not what we live into as people that call on the name of Jesus. We are to meet others in their sin in the way that God meets you in yours. Do you see that? Like the call of the priesthood of believers is that we don't step in in the way that I did, but we are to respond to others in the way that God responds to us. Romans 2, 4 reminds us that it's not us standing over somebody and condemning somebody, but it's actually the kindness of God that leads us to repentance in life. You feel that? Like there's a a drastic difference between what I did and what God's call is on our life to do with others that are dealing with sin and suffering in their life. And we see this in the example of Shem and Japheth and as they meet their father Noah in the tent. So Ham comes out of the tent and he invites Shem and Japheth to go in and join him in the mockery and ridicule. Um, So what happens is these two brothers, they actually do like address the sin that's going on in Noah's life. So they put on the garment over their shoulders, but instead of facing Noah as they go in, what do they do? They walk backwards. This is gentleness and kindness in the way that they deal with Noah's sin. Rather than participating with him and going and laying eyes on the shameful state of their father, what they're actually doing is living out Romans chapter 2 where they come to Noah and they address his sin. They don't overlook his sin. They don't pardon his sin. They actually put on the garment, but they walk backwards and they don't go in mockery and ridicule, but they actually go with honor and respect for their dad. And this is God's invitation for us as we live before others, whether Christians or not Christians. For those that are calling ourselves followers of Jesus, we are to live into the pattern that God has lived before us and how he's met us in our sin and in our suffering. So look, like confession, um, I think the response here is that we are to lean into repentance, all right? 
So if we, with our suffering that leads to sin, if the invitation is for us to live in a confession, I think our sin that inflicts suffering on other people, the invitation for us is to live into repentance. So go back with me to 1 Peter 2. This is the royal priesthood of believers passage. What do you see in that passage that the priesthood of believers do? They offer spiritual sacrifices. Do you know what a spiritual sacrifice is in the Bible? It's a life of repentance. So what, what Peter, the Apostle Peter is putting before us is the constant life of a Christian is that you are, this is like the definition of repentance, that it's repentance where you turn away from something and you turn to something, all right? So it's acknowledging and seeing your sin, the life that you once lived, you look at that and you say, I'm not doing that anymore, and then you turn to something better, And it's the kindness of Jesus in your life. It's the grace of Jesus in your life. And that's now the pattern that you live into. You no longer walk in the way that you used to, but you turn to the life that Christ has offered to you in his life, death, and resurrection, all right? And so look, this is the mark of the Christian life. This lifestyle of repentance. Martin Luther puts it like this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, He willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. This is what it looks like to live a life of a living sacrifice. Is that you're regularly looking at your life and you're looking at your old pattern of life, identifying these patterns of sin, and you're saying, not anymore, I'm dead to that. And you're turning to the life that you have in Jesus because we have united ourselves to him. He's no longer dead in a grave. He's seated at the right hand of God. And what we see in Ephesians chapter 2 is that we are connected with Jesus as he's seated at the right hand of God. We get to experience and partake of the life that we have in Christ, not just whenever he comes again, but here and now because the presence of the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. And so this means that I I look at this old way of life and I say I'm dead to that and now I'm alive to this pattern that I saw Jesus live in this life and I'm going to live in that, which also means that I'm going to respond to other people and their sin and suffering in the exact same way that God has responded to me in my sin and suffering, which was met with the gentleness and kindness that led me to repent and trust in Jesus in the first place. You feel that? So look, here's two questions for you. If I gave you two questions for confession, I want to give you two questions for repentance. Here's the two questions. What must I turn from? There's lingering effects of sin that are still in your life. What is it that's in my life that I need to turn from? And then, what must I turn to? So what you see in the New Testament, I need to hurry up here. What you see in the New Testament is you see these two different lists that Paul constantly places before believers in the letters that he writes to the church. And it's like the one pattern of life that they used to live, but then you also get this pattern of the invitation of what you're called to live into. And that's what we do when we live these lives of living sacrifices. We're constantly living in the balance of these two different lists. You're looking at the list that you once lived into and you're saying no longer because I'm dead to that. And then you're looking at this pattern that Paul and Jesus lay before us and saying this is what I'm called to live into and that's what we turn to. You see that? And so this is God's invitation for us as we think about the cycle of sin that often inflicts suffering on other people. We, re- we turn from it. 
We say, I'm dead to that way of life, and I'm actually going to step into this invitation where the way that God treated me is the way that I'm going to seek to live and approach other people and their sin and suffering as well. The way that I've been met is how I want to meet other people too. And so you have this, these two cycles of sin or suffering that leads to sin. And then sin that inflicts suffering on other people. And if, if you look at all this, here's my response this week. This is really hard. You feel that? This is really hard. Here's two things that I, I was wrestling with internally. One, this is heavy. What do I do? You know what I'm saying? Like, how, how do I do this? How do I live into this? I, the other end of this is I really want this. Like, I want this in my life. I don't like these other cycles of sin and suffering that I experience in my life. I want what is the invitation of this passage in my life. And so the question is, how do I get it? You feel those? And so look, here's the hope I want to leave you with. At the very end of our passage, what we see is that God is teasing out how he's making all of this possible for us. We need someone who can break the cycles of sin and suffering in this life. And then we also need that same person to change us. We recognize that we have a problem. And if we're really honest with ourselves, we look at ourselves in the mirror. We say, I can't do anything about this. As hard as I want to live and as, long, as hard as I want to change, I have come to this place that I recognize I just can't do it. And what we find is the kindness of God and the legacy of Noah's family. So the curses and the blessings that happen. We see the blessings that happen with Shem and Japheth. And we see the teasing out of God's plan and how he's going to bring all this to fruition in the life of a Christian. So Genesis 9.26, he says this, Praise be to the Lord. This is the first time that we, or this is right after the curse that's given to him. So these are the first words that we're hearing from Noah. He says, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. Now here's what I want you to see. Jesus is, is Shem's descendant. So Luke 3.36, if you look throughout the genealogy, we see that Jesus stems from Shem's family life. So look, God keeps his promise of Genesis 3.15. There really is a rescuer that came into this world. And then this Jesus that comes from Shem, he breaks the cycle of sin and suffering in this life. All right, so we see that Jesus never sins nor inflicts suffering on other people. Take, for instance, his meeting the woman that's caught in adultery. So this woman is caught in adultery. She's brought to Jesus. Jesus bends down, and he starts riding into the sand. And as he's riding into the sand, he's asking the people that are bringing this woman to himself, if you, have, if you are without sin, then you may cast the first stone. And so slowly but surely, people drop their rocks, and they leave the place, and it's just Jesus and this woman. And what does he say? I do not condemn you, but go and sin no more. He confronts the sin, but he meets this one with gentleness and kindness and forgiveness. Secondly, Jesus endures suffering, yet never sins. So we have Jesus after 40 days in the wilderness at the height of what is unfathomable by any of us without food or drink. Just imagine yourself doing that for one day and how hangry you get, right? 
Like the response that you get is this evil monster by everybody else that lives in your house, right? Jesus did this for 40 days and 40 nights. Satan doesn't just pawn this off to another demon. This is the opportunity that he has, and so he keeps it for himself. And so he meets Jesus in the wilderness, and he he brings every temptation that you and I could ever experience in this life, and he brings it to Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He walks out of that wilderness without any sin. He's endured all the suffering, all the hardship, all the, the pain that goes with walking through the wilderness, yet he comes out unscathed. He breaks the pattern of sin and suffering in this life, which gives you and I hope. Then you see in Genesis 9, 27, may God extend Japheth's territory, may Japheth live in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be the slave of Japheth. Look, you are the descendant of Japheth. So here's what the descendants of Japheth are. They are Gentiles, all right? So here's the invitation that the blessings that are pronounced upon Japheth, that the tents of Shem will be opened to them, that come true for us in Christ Jesus. And so these tents of Shem, which are the family of God, which we read through 1 Peter 2, that we are the priesthood of believers, are now open to us who are sinners that the people of God never would have fathomed would have been included into the family of God. Here's what 1 Peter 2, 3 says. These people that have been invited into the tent, these Gentiles that no one would have expected, every single one of us that are in this room, you have tasted that the Lord is good. That means you've tasted of that kindness, you've tasted of that goodness of God that leads people to repentance. That's been your experience of this living God. He came and met you in your hard place. He came and met you in your sin. He came and met you in your suffering and you tasted of his goodness. And then what happens in 1 Peter 2.10, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people, you had not received mercy, but look, now you have received mercy. Oh my gosh, you guys, I want you to believe this. I want you to believe this so bad. I do. We read, we sang this song, how deep the Father's love for us. Here's, I don't have it on the screen, and pardon my, my tears for you, but here's what we were saying. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life, and I know that it is finished. Like, I want you to live in that assurance. I do. It's true. Everything that I've told you is true. The God of the universe clothed himself in human flesh so that he could walk through everything that you and I do. He's experienced all of this temptation, all of the suffering that you and I do, yet was perfect. And yet willingly in his death and resurrection did for you that something that we could never do for ourselves. And then the gates of God were opened wide to us. The people that never deserved to taste of this kindness and this goodness of God have been extended to you. And it's true. It's true. Everything that God promised has come true and you're going to taste of it for all eternity when you, when you trust in Jesus and he comes back for you. And it's not just something that we look forward to. While we do look forward to the full experience of it, he's so kind that you get to experience in part now too. So look, receive this mercy 
this thing that brings us into the priesthood of believers, look, confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord. When you do that, it's not just you giving up your life, it's you're gaining his life. Everything that you have desired deep within your own soul, God shares with you here and now. All of the riches of the heavens are given to you. And then Christian, live in God's mercy. Look, it's ongoing. One of the prayers that we say often is that the the mercies of God are new every morning. I want you to live as if you believe it. That every time you wake up, your eyes in the morning, that your experience is the mercy of God. The kindness and the goodness of God. You have fellowship with the living God. So look, man, repent and turn. Like, turn and live into this life. Stop dealing with the ways that you once lived, look at it and say no more and then turn to the life that is offered to you in Jesus and go to one another and say, I need help so that we can carry our sins with one another and continue to point one another into the life that Christ has promised us to experience here and now. If this is you, um, we'll have some leaders in the back that would love, love, to introduce you to how you can live in this way. But for now, let's pray.